0: All right, it's that time once again. Come on in, grab a seat. We'll get started here. Nice, bright, sunny day. Good to see all your nice, bright, sunny faces this morning. Thanks for joining us here. Um, As we get started, uh, let me just uh, give us just a few announcements just to make be aware of as we uh, go through this month and next month. Two Sundays from now, Uh, Sunday, January 29th, we have a congregational meeting. Um, So that will be a time to come for members to vote on uh, elder candidates, to vote on the new budget for the year, Um, and also a few other business items, also to get an update on on where where things have been at the church and where we're going, where we're headed in this next year. So if you have a bulletin, you can grab a bulletin. There's more uh, details in there about a couple of the business items that we're going to be uh, voting on. There's also the announcement that uh, pending uh, pending confirmation from the nominating committee we're going to be presenting Dave Hokey and Jim Martin as uh, elder candidates to be voted on on the 29th. So that's the, the announcement that that meeting is happening, that's who we'll be voting on. We'll also look at the budget and some other ministry items. Uh, but if you want a full breakdown of those details you can read your bulletin and over the next two weeks if you have any comments, questions, thoughts, Uh, You can approach me, you can approach Russ or Jim or Pete or one of the elders um, with any questions, concerns, thoughts you have about any of that stuff in anticipation of the meeting on the 29th. So be sure to check that out, read that in the bulletin, think through that and come with any questions you have. Uh, Then as we get into February, a few things to note, a few dates. Um, We have two prayer groups starting in February. One is an evangelism prayer group that's going to start meeting the first Sunday of each month at nine in the children's church room. And the second is a parent prayer group for anyone who parents, is a parent, prospective parents, uh, parent in any shape or form. Uh, That'll be a prayer group that'll meet starting on the last Sunday of each month, starting on that last Sunday in February. So those prayer groups will open and close each month starting in February. And then uh, we also have a Weymouth Students All-Nighter, February 17th. Uh, We're going to be meeting at 6 p.m. at the Foundry Social here in Medina. Uh, So drinks and game tokens and stuff like that will be covered. But we're asking if you want to eat food and have dinner with us just to either bring $15 for food or you can pay online when you register online. You can learn more about that at our website, WeymouthChurch.com or at our church center app. Uh, But That's going to be a fun night for students, grades 6 through 12, on February 17th. So we'll meet at the Foundry at 6, then we'll come here to the church and we'll be here until 8 a.m. We ask that you please come pick your kids up at 8 a.m. So the adults helping with that can go home and sleep after that, because that's going to be a crazy night. So uh, that'll be happening. So a few things happening in February, uh, and then congregational meeting at the end of the month. So we'll be praying for those things, thinking about those things, how you might be involved in all that. And then as we think of prayer, we're going to take a few moments just in silent prayer to prepare our hearts this morning for worship. So please bow for a few moments of silent prayer. The psalmist writes, "The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof; the world, and those who dwell with therein. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation." Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Gracious Father, that's our prayer this morning, Lord, that uh, we would seek your face, that we would worship in your presence, Lord. And as we do so, please give us clean hands. Give us a pure heart, Lord. Forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for all of our idolatry, all of our uh, selfishness and uh, pride, all of the ways we've fail to obey your commands all the ways we've sought to obey them for selfish or prideful reasons. Forgive us for the 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 evil we have done, for the good we have left undone, for the motives of our heart that are so often full of selfishness and pride. Give us clean hands and a pure heart this morning. Remind us again and anew of your Son who ascended the hill outside of Jerusalem to pay the price for our sins, to bring us into your presence, Lord. Help us to praise you and thank you uh, with our words, with our actions, with our service this week, with our fellowship together, Lord, for your glory, for our good in Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. Amen. Now let's stand and sing together.
1: saints adore thee, passing down their golden palms around the
0: It's been our pattern uh, this year to go through the catechism together. We're going through the New City Catechism, particularly with the kids. So I'm going to invite any kids who are here, fifth grade and below, you're welcome to come on up to the front and have a seat up here on the steps with me. Um, and if, you, if your parent wants to bring you up as well, that's fine too, but you can also come up here on your own. Good morning. Good morning, ladies. How's it going? Good. Yes. That's, that's a nice dress. So I have a big, big book here for you, right? Now, this is a dictionary. It's a Bible dictionary, but like all dictionaries, it's very big, right? Now, typically, what does a dictionary do? What do you use a dictionary for? Yeah, tell you what words mean, right? You look up in a dictionary and you learn what words mean. Now, do you guys like learning new words? You like learning what words mean, learning new words and phrases? Kind of. Kind of, yeah. I hear you. I hear you. Well, today, what we're going to do in our catechism question is I want to teach you guys, and all of us, teach you two words, maybe words you've heard before, maybe words you haven't heard before. They're kind of churchy words. They both begin with the letter R. Do you have any guess what they might be? A new word that begins with the letter R. You want to take a guess? Resurrection. Resurrection. That's a very good guess. That's close. Do you have a guess? No? All right. Well, let's read our catechism question and see if you can see what these two new words are. So we'll see. It's on that screen, not on that screen. So I'm going to turn my head here. So if you look on that screen, there's our catechism question. question number 19. And the question is, is there any way to escape punishment and be brought back into God's favor? I forgot the T in the word brought. I need to read the dictionary more. Uh, be brought back into God's favor. Yes, God reconciles us to himself by a redeemer. All right, so what are two words in there that start with the letter R? Yes. Redeemer, redeemer. yes. Reconcile. Reconcile, yes. So those are the two words that I want to teach you this morning. They're two words that answer this question in our catechism. Because last week we talked about how we're all sinners, we've all rebelled against God, we're all fallen, and so because of that we deserve his punishment, we deserve his justice, his judgment for our sin. But the next question tells us that God has made a way for us to escape, to be freed from the judgment we deserve, to be reconciled to him by a redeemer. Now, the first word then we're going to learn then is this word reconcile. Have you heard this word before, reconcile? Yeah. Yeah? No? Do you, know? do, you, do, you know, do you have a guess at what it might mean? No. So, reconcile is when you have two things that are apart, and then those two things come back together. So, maybe you've ever had a fight with a sibling or a friend, um, and then you guys made up, you apologize, you forgive each other, and you come back together, right? That's what reconciliation is. It's that be, being reunited, coming back together after there's been some sort of separation because of uh, you know, anger or a fight or frustration or judgment. So to be reconciled with somebody is to be brought back together with somebody. Does that make sense? Now what about the word redemption? Have you ever heard that word before? To be redeemed or redemption? Yeah, you want to take a guess at what that word means? I'll give you a clue. It has to do with something that you have maybe in your piggy bank at home. Do you guys have piggy banks? We have a piggy bank, it looks like a hamburger. It's pretty cool, it's pretty cool. One of my daughters tries to eat it sometimes. Yeah, yeah, what do you, what do you, keep, what do you keep in a piggy bank? Money. Money, yes, and what do you use money for? To buy stuff. To buy stuff, exactly, right? To purchase things, right? You take your quarters or your money and you go buy candy or toys or gifts for your parents, right? Um, you know, um, yeah, so to, to redeem, is, means it means to purchase. Redeem is an old word that just means to purchase something, to buy something. Particularly, it was used back in, back in the Bible times to talk about somebody who was a slave um, who would purchase or redeem their freedom or have their freedom purchased or redeemed for them. So to be redeemed is to buy something, to, to purchase something. And so the, the, the question this week in our catechism tells us that even though we deserved God's punishment, even though our sin separates us from God, that God has made a way for us to be reconciled with him, to be brought back together with him, to be reunited with him, And the way that he's done that is by giving us a redeemer, giving us somebody who's come to pay the price for us, to purchase us, to pay the price for our sins, to bring us back to God. Do you guys have any guess who that redeemer is? Jesus. Jesus. Yeah, exactly. Jesus is the one who went to the cross, and on the cross he purchased us. He paid the price for our sins with his own life by dying in our place. And because he did that and because he rose again, If we trust in him, if we believe in him, then even though we deserve God's punishment for our sins, even though our sin separates us from God, through faith in Jesus, we can be forgiven for our sins. We can be brought back together with God, not because of anything we've done, but because Jesus, our Redeemer, has purchased us at the cross. Does that make sense? Any questions about that? Yeah, so think about that next time you break open your piggy bank, right? That Jesus paid the price to redeem us, to bring us back to God. So let's pray and let's thank him now for what he's done for us. Gracious Father, we thank you that even though uh, you are just and holy, even though you have to punish and destroy sin, we thank you that you've made a way for us to be freed from the judgment we deserve by your grace through our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, Lord. We thank you that you've made a way for us to be reconciled to you by sending your Son to pay the price for our sins on the cross. So Lord, help us to believe in Christ, to rest in him, to trust in him who purchased us not our own efforts or not our own works. And Lord, bring us back into your presence this morning with clean hands, with pure hearts, not because of anything uh, good in us, but because of the purchase and the hope and the life we have in Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, you guys can go back to your parents. Um, or is there a children's church? Yep, all right, go with Mr. and Mrs. Namus to children's church, and uh, the rest of us will stand and we'll sing together. <laughs>
1: tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair, And tells me of the guilt within, Upward I look and see him there, Who made an end to all my sin. Because a sinless Savior died, Sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. To look on Him and pardon me. Behold Him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness. Unchangeable I am The King of glory and of grace One with His love I cannot die My soul is purchased with His blood My life is hid with Christ on high With Christ my Savior and my God With Christ my Savior
0: be seated and then I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark. Uh, If you need a Bible there's some in the the pew backs in front of you. Uh, We're in the book of Mark we're we're going through uh, a series here in Mark's gospel. Uh, We are in chapter 4 this morning. We'll be in chapter 4 as well next week. Um, This morning we are looking at Mark chapter 4 verses 21 through 34 we're in a series of Jesus teaching uh, using parables. We looked at the first parable last week. We'll look at three more parables together this morning. Here, starting in verse 21 of Mark chapter 4. So follow along as I read. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket <clears throat> or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, he knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, and puts out large Branches, so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. Amen. This is the word of God. Please pray with me. Gracious fathers who come to your word to these parables this morning Lord give us ears to hear them help us to hear them productively may your truth come and take root in our hearts may it produce fruit in our lives may it grow and mature in ways that surprise us in ways that honor you in ways that point us to your glory and your goodness in Christ in whose name we pray amen amen well, being uh, near Cleveland, uh, many of us know the, the pain and the sorrow that comes from supporting Cleveland sports teams, right? Um, we've had a few moments of, of joy and, and glory, but overall there's been a lot of pain over the years. Uh, but one of the most frustrating things in sports is not just when your team is doing badly, but also when your team seems on paper like it should be really good, but then they underperform. Right? That can be one of the most frustrating things when you're watching sports. You say, hey, we, we know we have a really good team. We know they're really good. But oh no, the Golden State Warriors got Kevin Durant. So now we're going to have four years of really frustrating NBA Finals. Right? It can be really frustrating when you have a good team and then that team underperforms. They don't live up to their potential. I mean, you ask, okay, what is going on here? We have all this talent. We have all this momentum. Why are we still losing? Or why is this still happening? Why are we underperforming? That can be really, really frustrating in sports. And um, and here in the book of Mark, we are in a section uh, where Jesus' ministry has been met with a variety of different responses. Um, Some people, like Jesus' disciples, they've obeyed Christ's call to follow him. uh, While others, like Jesus' family, they've come to try and restrain Christ, saying that he's crazy. And still others, we've seen Jesus' opponents, the religious leaders, they've come and accused Jesus of being crazy evil, of being possessed uh, by a demon. So we've seen a variety of responses to Jesus' ministry. And so the the question for us today is, and the question for the early disciples as they see these different responses would be, why is this happening? Why are we seeing these variety of different responses of opposition, even hostility to Jesus and his message? Because Jesus, remember, he began his ministry in chapter 1, With the announcement with the proclamation that the kingdom of god is at hand so people should repent and believe the gospel this was the proclamation and yet many people reject this message many people opposed jesus but if what christ says is true if the kingdom of god is at hand in the coming of christ then why is there this rejection why are people responding to the message with hostility or confusion. And the question for us today, is similarly, is if God's kingdom if really, it really is at hand, if God is growing his kingdom, growing his people, his church in Christ, then why are there so many who reject the gospel message? Why is there such hostility, such persecution, such opposition to the kingdom of God all over our world today? If God's kingdom is at hand, then why can it sometimes seem like the church is underperforming? Why is this happening? What is going on? Well, to help us understand this and to understand these different responses to his message, Jesus, he gives us this series of parables. Now, a parable is a story, it's an illustration, it's a picture that has a message, that has a point that it's trying to teach us. Last week we looked at the parable of the sower, which we talked about as a parable about parables that illustrates what happens when Jesus teaches in parables. We looked at the parable of the sower last week, and then this morning we have three more parables about growth, about the kingdom of God and how God grows his kingdom in the world. And in these parables this morning, what we are going to see, the, the big idea that's going to be revealed to us, is that uh, the kingdom of God grows mysteriously through humility? That's the point Jesus is making in these parables, is that the kingdom of God grows mysteriously through humility. And so let's see what this means this morning by looking together at these three parables. The first, we have the parable of the lamp under the basket, starting in verse 21. The parable of the lamp under the basket. So following then the parable of the sower in this section of chapter 4, a parable which we said was a parable about parables, Jesus, he follows up with another parable that further explains, further illustrates how these parables work, what their purpose is, what their function is. Jesus says, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Now, when we moved into our new house in Medina back in the fall, uh, we got a couple new lamps for our living room. Now, I'm not the most handy person in the world, but even I knew that when we got those lamps, we shouldn't just take them and shove them in a closet or shove them in storage, right? I don't know a lot about house stuff, but I do know that, that if you have a lamp, you don't shove it and hide it and put it away somewhere. No, you plug it in, you display it, you put it out so that its light can shine into the room. It can illuminate the room. And similarly, Jesus uses this this picture here in this parable because when he began teaching in parables, using these illustrations, using these stories to teach, it might have seemed to Jesus' listeners like he was taking the truth of God and shoving it in a closet. Like he was shoving it into storage, like he was intentionally hiding the truth, covering up the light with a basket. But Jesus uses this parable to say, obviously, No one would do that. Why would he be doing that? Why would people do that with a light? If you have a lamp, you want to display its light. You don't want to cover it up. And remember, Jesus, he began his ministry with the light of the proclamation that the kingdom of God is at hand, that people should repent and believe the gospel. So why would Jesus want to cover that light up if he's trying to spread this message, proclaim the light of God's truth? See, in telling parables, Jesus, he's not trying to cover the light of the truth of God. In reality, by teaching in parables, Jesus is proclaiming the light of God's truth in such a way that it will more powerfully and productively shine into our hearts. Jesus uses parables as a creative way of teaching to actually help the light shine more brightly, more fruitfully, more powerfully into the heart of of his listeners. Jesus says this himself in verse 22. He says, For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. And this idea here, Jesus is talking about something that is hidden, something that is secret. When we see this in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, when the biblical writers talk about something that is a mystery, something that is a secret, They're not talking about something that we can't know, something that we can't figure out. They're talking about something that has been hidden, some truth that is mysterious, that is secret. But the reason it is mysterious, the reason it is hidden, is because it's going to be revealed or because it has been revealed. That's what the idea of mystery in the New Testament uh, gets us thinking about, something that was hidden that is now revealed. We see this in places like Ephesians 3. We see this where Paul, he writes of the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. In Ephesians 3, he refers to this mystery of Christ, which was the truth that the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, are now included as full members of the household of God, full participants in Christ through faith. This was a mystery that hadn't been revealed uh, throughout church history until the time of the apostles, where it was revealed by the uh, Holy Spirit to the early church. This was a mystery, but it was a truth that was hidden, but was now revealed. And Jesus is saying something similar about his parables here, that in his parables, the secret things, the hidden things of God, they are becoming manifest. They are hidden in order to be made known, in order to be revealed. It's important to remember that when we are reading the Bible, we are reading revelation. We're not just reading the book of revelation. The entire Bible is revelation to us. It is truth that God himself is revealing to us. Because we are, we are fallen, we are sinful, we are ignorant creatures on our own. On our own, we are too caught up in sin, too separated from God by our sin to make our way to God, to discover things about God on our own. And so in his grace, God has to reveal himself to us. We won't know him if he doesn't reveal himself to us. And he graciously does so. He reveals himself to us through creation and through his word. And so the Bible, it's revelation. It's God revealing his truth to us. As the theologian Herman wrote, he said, there is no religion without revelation. And in the book of Mark, Jesus brings us a revelation about God. He reveals a truth to us about the arrival of God's kingdom. And he teaches this truth in parables, uh, not to hide it so that we don't understand it, but he teaches it in parables so that when we hear the truth of the kingdom, that it will shine more brightly, more powerfully into our hearts. He hides it, he teaches it creatively in such a way that it strikes us, it surprises us, it cuts through all of our ignorance, it cuts through all of our hardness, and it gets into our hearts. There's a commentator, Klein Snodgrass, which, by the way, I think that's my favorite name of a commentator or an author I've ever read, Klein Snodgrass, that's, just, that's too good. Um, Klein Snodgrass, he puts it this way, he says, parables hide in order to reveal. Parables hide the truth in order to help us hear the truth, in order to help us hear it productively and powerfully. If you've ever watched a mystery movie or if you've ever read a good mystery novel, then you know that when you open up a mystery like that, you don't want the truth explained to you just right away. You don't want just the facts dumped on you like, hey, this person died and this person was the killer and this is how they tried to hide it. You don't want that on page one of a mystery novel, right? You don't want that to be the first scene of a mystery movie. The whole point of that is you want to be carried along by the story, by the plot, by the characters, by what happens, so that in the end, when the mystery is revealed, it surprises you, it shocks you in such a way that you have a greater appreciation for the entire story. You have a greater appreciation for the book or the movie that you just watched. And in a similar way, in his parables, Jesus hides the truth creatively in narrative, or metaphors, or simile, or imagery. And he does so not to keep us from understanding it, but so that as we are carried along by the parable, when the truth is finally revealed, when the parlor-room scene comes, and we come to understand what the parable is about, then the truth has gotten under our skin. It shocks us, it surprises us in a way that it allows the truth to dig deeper roots into our hearts, that it allows the truth to shine more powerfully into our hearts to give us a greater illumination, a greater appreciation for what the truth is, for what the truth is about. And so Jesus, in verse 23, he repeats this command that he said earlier in chapter four. He says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Because not everyone has patience, right, for mystery novels or mystery movies or mystery stories. Not everybody wants to be carried along. Not everybody wants the truth to be hidden. Not everybody has ears to hear that or an appreciation for that. Not everybody wants to hear the greater meaning or revelation of the story or of the parable. Not all of Jesus' listeners had a heart for it, had an appetite for it, had an interest in it. But those who have ears to hear who were struck by the story, struck by the imagery of the parable, who were carried along by its mystery, who were eager for its truth to be revealed. Those were the ones who heard the truth, who were transformed by the truth, who had the truth take root in their hearts and produce fruit in them. And so the question for us this morning is, when we come to God's Word, when we come to uh, the parables in Jesus' teaching or other parts of the Bible, are we eager to be carried along by it? Are we eager to take God's word for what it is, how it's presented to us, how it's revealed to us? Are we eager, are we prepared to have God's truth take root in our hearts in ways that might surprise or shock us? To have truth illuminated in such a way uh, that we hadn't thought about before, that we weren't expecting? Do we come to God's word expected, expectantly? Do we come to God's word ready to be surprised or shocked, ready to be carried along by it, ready to truly hear it? Or has god's word become stale in our hearts has it become routine do we understand how creative how amazing how powerful this revealed word is that the god of the universe would choose to reveal himself in words to us that jesus his son would choose to use creative means to help us to understand this word to hide it so that we can hear it do we have ears to hear his word do we have hearts that are ready to submit to it, to come to it expectantly and humbly and ready for it to to transform us, to produce fruit in us by the Spirit. Jesus says to his disciples, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given. From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And when we read the statement by Jesus, at first it can seem like he's talking about the disciples' possessions, that those who have a lot will be given more, and those who don't have a lot will even have <clears throat> that taken away from them. But Jesus, he's not talking about the disciples' possessions. Remember the context here? He's talking about parables. He's talking about truth that is hidden in order to be revealed, about those who have ears to hear. He's saying that those who have ears to hear the parable, those who have an abundance of interest in the teaching, the parable of Jesus, that have an abundant desire to understand its truth, that to them more will be given. More instruction, more explanation, more truth will be revealed to them. And we saw this in the parable of the sower last week where Jesus gives this parable to a large crowd of people, but then it's only a small group of disciples who come back and ask for an explanation of the parable because they had heard rightly they had heard productively they were interested in in uncovering what the parable meant And he says this in verse 34 here that uh, jesus spoke to them in parables but privately he explained them to his disciples because they had ears to hear to go deeper what they uh, what they already had in abundance to that more was added more explanation more truth But to those who didn't have ears to hear, who were hard-hearted towards Jesus' message, who weren't interested in learning more about the parables, weren't carried along or surprised by Jesus' teaching, the parables served to only further harden their hearts as a way of revealing uh, their hard-heartedness, revealing how their ears uh, were stopped up to Jesus' message. And so what little they already had was taken away. See, Jesus, he could have been a teacher who explained everything up front. He could have been a teacher who just right away took all the facts and just dumped them on his listeners. But that's not what Jesus chose to do. He chose to creatively and graciously use parables, use pictures to explain the truth in a way that people could hear it, but also to explain the truth in a way that uh, gets into our hearts, that reveals the nature of our hearts, that reveals whether our hearts are hard-hearted towards God or whether our hearts are receptive to his message. So when you hear the parables, when you hear God's word taught, when you read it for yourself, what does it tell you about your own heart? About the softness or hardness of your heart? How does your hearing of the word reveal to you whether you're somebody who has an abundant interest in being transformed by it, or whether you're somebody whose heart is hard to scripture? How are you approaching it? How are you hearing it? What is it teaching you about your heart? Because Jesus taught creatively in parables to get at people's hearts, to grow, to grow disciples mysteriously by hiding truth in order to reveal truth. It is in this mysterious way that Jesus grows disciples, and it is also in this mysterious way that Jesus is growing his kingdom. And that's the second parable we have for us this morning first the parable of the light under the basket secondly the parable of the growing seed parable of the growing seed now we're not big gardeners in our family in our house we used to have a little garden plot in our old house that just got overtaken with weeds and was just very very depressing to look at right so we're not big big gardeners plants don't live very long at our house so if you ever give us flowers just know that those flowers will not be well taken care of, Um, they will not live for very long, but uh, we have other family members, other people like my mother-in-law who are really, really gifted gardeners, who are really good at taking a plot of soil and planting seeds and keeping those seeds growing and going and taking care of them, and I'm amazed by that, I'm amazed by that, because I just don't understand how that works. I don't understand how, you know, you plant a seed in the ground and then it takes root and then starts to flourish and starts to grow and, and comes out of the ground. and all of a sudden you have tomatoes or all of a sudden you have whatever else things people grow, right? right? It's, 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 it's kind of amazing when you think about that this process happens. This little seed goes into the ground, is hidden for a while, but then all of a sudden it sprouts up. It reveals this greater thing than it was before. And this is the picture that Jesus uses to describe the growth of God's kingdom as something that seems small, that's hidden in the ground for a while, but then all of a sudden it sprouts up and produces fruit in ways that are unexpected, in ways that are surprising. He describes how the kingdom is like a man who scatters seed on the ground. And then over time, as he, this man sleeps and wakes, as the days go by, uh, the seed sprouts and it grows and I love this part, it sprouts and it grows, he knows not how. because I totally relate to that with gardening, right? He knows not how. We don't know how this works. We don't know at what point the seed decides, all right, I'm gonna break open now and start producing roots. We, as human beings, can't fully comprehend how this works. He knows not how. The farmer, he plays a role in planting the seed, but ultimately, uh, the the growth of the seed is is a physical act. It happens automatically from the seed itself. It grows and flourishes in ways that the farmer can't truly know or understand. And in a similar way, the growth of God's kingdom is an act of God himself. He uses his church, he uses people, he uses believers as part of this growth. But ultimately, the growth of the kingdom is a work of God, it is an act of God. And God is going to grow his kingdom in ways that might shock us or surprise us in ways that might seem hidden or unexpected at first, in ways that we can't fully understand, ways that we wouldn't uh, plan or orchestrate for ourselves. You see, when the early followers of Jesus, when his early disciples, uh, when they began uh, following Jesus, when they thought about God's kingdom, about the promise of God's Messiah, his anointed king, they thought about this promise, this kingdom, in an earthly sense. They were looking for an earthly kingdom, an earthly Messiah, king, who would come and oppose their earthly oppressors, who would come and overthrow their Roman oppressors and take back the throne in Jerusalem and restore the kingdom of Israel. This was the understanding of most of Jesus' Jewish followers when they thought about the coming of God's kingdom. But so far, the shape of Jesus' ministry has looked strikingly different than this expectation. Instead of being welcomed by all of Israel as this revolutionary leader, Jesus has been opposed by the Jewish leaders. His message has often been rejected. Instead of raising a huge army to start a revolution, Jesus, he called a small group of fishermen and tax collectors and sinners and other unremarkable people to follow him. And this difference between what people expected Jesus' ministry to look like and what it actually looked like, this difference is going to continue throughout the book of Mark. The way Jesus, he grows his kingdom, the way he grows the kingdom of God, the way he's going to rescue and restore God's people is often going to look more like weakness than power. It's often going to look more like defeat than victory. But in the end, Through his death and through his resurrection on the third day, Jesus is going to reveal that God's plan to grow his kingdom, it's far more awesome or wonderful than anyone could have imagined. It's going to shock and surprise us in how amazing and wonderful it is. Because Jesus says that a harvest will come that the kingdom is going to grow and flourish in such a powerful way that, will, that there will come a time for it to be harvested, a time for the sickle, a time for the, the wheat to be cut and gathered in and the chaff to be thrown away and burned. You see, Jesus' mission wasn't just to launch an earthly revolution or to conquer an earthly throne. Jesus' mission was to usher in God's kingdom was to come and sit on an eternal throne. The, the, kingdom, uh, the, the kingdom of God, the true Messiah, he is the one who is going to come sit on an eternal throne, who is going to come and one day and return and judge the living and the dead. The categories of how people thought about God's kingdom were far too small. The truth about how Jesus was going to grow his kingdom, it wasn't Just an earthly, uh, it wasn't just an earthly approach, it was an eternal approach. So from an earthly perspective, it might look small, it might look weak, it might look hidden. But the flourishing, the fruit of this kingdom was going to carry into eternity, was going to have an eternal harvest. But the way that this eternal kingdom was going to grow and develop, the way it still grows and develops now, will sometimes be surprising or perplexing. Because sometimes the powers of death, of sin, of the devil might seem like they have the upper hand. The realities of suffering, of persecution, of hostility, of cultural or political or moral opposition to the kingdom of God. These things might seem like they're on the verge of toppling this kingdom, of making God's kingdom seem irrelevant. But in those moments where the kingdom seems hidden, remember that the kingdom is still Growing, just as a seed flourishes underground in ways that we can't see or fully understand, so too is God's kingdom growing and flourishing in ways that sometimes we can't see. Sometimes we won't understand this side of eternity. And I was thinking about that this week because there's been a lot of press lately in the world about the decline of the church, the decline of Christianity, particularly in the West, particularly in our country. But when we take a global perspective, when we look at what we see is that actually there's places in the world, places like Iran, China, India, Saudi Arabia, places where the church is growing and flourishing in ways that are surprising, in ways that are honestly shocking and amazing. Right? When we pull out and we look at that global perspective, we see the kingdom growing in the face of persecution, in the face of hostility. You would think that in a country like ours, where we have freedom of religion, where we have a history of Christian cultural influence, right, where we don't face persecution and hostility for our faith, you think a country like this, a world, a place like this, a culture like this would be primed for God's kingdom to grow. But it's actually in the places where there is hostile persecution, where there is no religious freedom, where it is extremely costly to follow Christ. It is these places where the kingdom is growing and flourishing in unprecedented ways. Now, that's not to say that it's not growing here as well, as it is. That's not to say that we should welcome persecution or reject the freedom of religion. But this global picture should be a reminder to us that God is the one who grows his kingdom and not us. And he is not beholden to our expectations or our agendas. He is not reliant on earthly powers or institutions to grow his kingdom. His sovereign power is made perfect in weakness. He can bring victory out of what looks to the world like defeat. He can bring life out of what looks to the world like death. So it's not our job as Christians to force or try and manufacture the growth of his manufacture the growth of his kingdom. God is the one who is in control of all of that. Our call is to be faithful with what he has called us to do. Even when that calling seems small or insignificant or weak or costly. When it seems like foolishness or even when it seems like death. Our call is to be faithful. See, as a church, we don't need to hitch our wagon. We need to hitch our wagon to some political power or to some cultural movement or institution in order to grow. We don't need to water down the message or abandon the tough parts of Scripture in order to make Christianity seem more accessible. We shouldn't expect the growth of God's kingdom to be comfortable or easy or even obvious. We shouldn't think that we need some extra third party or extra third power to help us here. Because our call is not to manufacture growth. Our call is to make disciples. Our call is to plant seeds by sharing the word of God, by sharing the light of the gospel, and trusting God to make those seeds grow, trusting him with the results, trusting him to grow his kingdom in ways that might seem hidden to us for years and years and years, even our entire lives. But then to see on the other side of eternity a harvest that is going to grow grow into eternity. To see a harvest that we never could have expected or planned for ourselves. To trust that God is the one who brings growth, even when that growth seems hidden. And so this will be uncomfortable, this call to make disciples, to plant seeds, to share the gospel, to trust in God, to grow his kingdom. It might be uncomfortable. It requires us to give up control, to face up to our fears and our discomforts across the pain line of sharing our faith, to risk hostility, to risk persecution, to trust that God can use us, that he can work through even the, the smallest seed and cause it to grow. And this then brings us to our third parable this morning, the parable of the mustard seed. parable of the mustard seed. In our backyard, if you go to our house, uh, in our backyard, there's these two giant maple trees that have been around longer than our house has been around. They've been around for a long, long time here in Medina. And uh, I love looking at these trees. It's amazing to look at them and sit under them and see how huge they are and think about that. At one point, these trees were just a a tiny little acorn. They were a tiny little seed that got planted in the ground and over time have grown into these mighty and majestic uh, maple trees. They started as something that seemed insignificant. And yet they grew into something far more massive than anybody could have predicted or imagined. And in a similar way, Jesus, he compares the kingdom of God to a mustard seed. A mustard seed, which is one of the smallest seeds in existence. But when it's planted, it grows into one of the largest plants you can find in your garden. A plant that's so large that that birds can come and make uh, nests in its branches. And the point of the picture is not to get too caught up in what mustard seeds are, or how they work, or where they grow, or what climate they grow best in, or whatever. Uh, The point of this picture is this contrast here between the smallness of the seed and the largeness of the plant that it produces, the largeness of the mature plant. And this contrast is striking because instead of comparing the kingdom of God to a massive, world-altering, throne-conquering revolution, Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a minuscule seed. He's saying that the coming of God's kingdom might initially look, from a human perspective, far smaller than anyone expected. The coming of God's kingdom, it started with a a Messiah from Nazareth, from a backwater, tiny little town. It started with a Messiah who then came and called a, a group of common men from Galilee. His kingdom, it didn't start with a ruler, with a general, with a politician who raises this massive army. It started in small and unexpected ways. In God's kingdom, Jesus' ministry, as we've seen, it wasn't met with widespread acceptance or allegiance. There were crowds that flocked to Jesus, but uh, many people in those crowds just wanted the physical healing that he had to offer. They didn't want to submit to the repentance and faith that Jesus called them to. Only a small group of disciples were truly following Jesus and obeying his message and going along with his ministry. Many didn't truly hear the message. That was the point of the parable of the sower, that three out of the four soils fail. They don't produce fruit. Only the one soil does. Right? This was a a small response to the ministry of Jesus. Only a small group truly had ears to hear, while others actively opposed and rejected the message of Jesus. And from a human perspective, this is a strange way to start a revolution. This is a strange way to grow a kingdom. And it's only going to get stranger as we keep going through Mark. Because the ultimate way that Jesus is going to usher in and grow God's kingdom it's not by going and conquering the throne in Jerusalem, but by going and being conquered, by being crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem. And In the week before his death, in John chapter 12, Jesus tells this to his disciples. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit whoever loves his life loses it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life jesus is saying that in order for a seed to grow it first has to be planted it has to be buried in the ground in order for a head of wheat a grain of wheat to produce fruit it has to fall to the ground and die and scatter its seed that death is a part of growth but there's no fruitfulness, there's no growth without death, without sacrifice. In order for a seed to grow, it has to be planted. It has to be buried, it has to be hidden for a while. Only through that burial, through that hiddenness, will it grow and produce fruit. And these are the pictures that Jesus uses to describe the kingdom of God. To describe his mission, to describe his ministry. This is the picture that Jesus himself lives out in his death and in his resurrection. Because Jesus is ultimately the one who is buried in order to produce the growth of God's kingdom. He is the one who goes and dies in order to plant the seeds of the gospel that would lead many to come to eternal life in Christ. It is through his death, his sacrifice, that the kingdom of God is ushered in. It fully arrives. It grows through those who come to faith and trust in the person and work of christ and so we see that the kingdom of god it comes not in power and strength but in uh, weakness and sacrifice it comes not through earthly esteem or acclaim it comes through humiliation and persecution it grows not through pride and self-promotion but through humility and self-forgetfulness And is this what our mission looks like as a church? Are we willing to embrace weakness and sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom? Are we willing to give up our lives in this world for the sake of eternal life in God's kingdom? Are we willing to go and look small or weak, to look irrelevant or foolish for the sake of the gospel? Are we willing to fall to the ground and give up our own lives in order to scatter the seed of the gospel, in order to help others grow and flourish. Because growth comes through sacrifice. God's victory, God's life, it's revealed through death, through defeat. So from a human perspective, the things we do as a church, as we gather together, as we worship, as we go out and serve, as we love our neighbors, as we read the word together, as we share the gospel together, In the face of all that we are facing, these things may seem small or insignificant. We may be tempted to want to go and attach ourselves to some powerful, charismatic leader or institution outside of the church, thinking that that will bring us more power or comfort. Thinking that the kingdom should look more powerful than it is. It should be performing better than it is. But when we remember the sovereignty of God, when we remember that he is a God who can hide truth in order to reveal it, that he is a God who can bring resurrection out of crucifixion, that he can bring life out of death, that he can bring victory out of defeat, that he can grow a huge plant out of a tiny seed, then we can remember that we don't need to trust in any other power, any other authority, any other savior to grow his kingdom. God is going to do this work He's going to do it mysteriously through humility. In Christ, he already has. And our call is to participate in it, to trust in it, to submit to what he has already started, what he has already done in Christ, and live it out in reliance on him, trusting him, not ourselves, not anyone else, to grow, remembering that his power is made perfect in weakness, that what might seem like foolishness to the world is actually the wisdom of God. That the humble, small, insignificant-seeming sacrifices of faithfulness to Christ, of sharing his word, of loving our neighbors, of speaking the gospel, of giving ourselves up in self-giving love for other people, that these things can be used by God in unbelievable ways to grow his kingdom. As the hymn writer William Cowper wrote, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. In deep and unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. That is our hope and that is our trust as we go and as we grow together. So let's pray to him. Gracious Father, we thank you for this reminder of how what looks like smallness, what looks like weakness, what even looks like failure or defeat are actually often the very means by which you grow your kingdom and your power and in your sovereignty. So help us to be a people who are willing to embrace loss, embrace sacrifice, embrace even death, For the sake of your glory and your kingdom, help us not to to seek only what is comfortable, to seek security anywhere else outside of you. Lord, but help us to be bold in our trust and in our humility, remembering that you have already accomplished everything necessary for our life and salvation. You have already ushered in your kingdom in Christ. So help us to live out the reality of this kingdom, resting. And you as the one who grows your kingdom mysteriously through humility for your glory, for our good. Help us in all these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, We'll stand and close by singing one final song together.
1: morning
0: go we're going to stand just for a final word of benediction now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever amen amen go in peace